Thank you, David. Let's pray together. That's true, Lord, what we're about here in this conference and in this message and over this book is, is not trifling. Forbid that there would be any, anything trivial in the way we speak about the massive importance of this book that thousands of children and teenagers would, would grow up reverencing the God of the Bible and the word of the God of the Bible, the Bible. So cause there to be a, an awakening of a passion for the word of God, the truth in this conference, I pray. Help me now to be faithful to it. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the greatest tragedies for children in our age is, is the cavalier attitude toward truth. By that I mean acting as though there were no such thing as truth or acting as though it's there and it doesn't matter much when in fact truth matters eternally. Michael Novak, in an article in First Things, writes about that attitude towards truth with regard to children like this. There is no such thing as truth, they teach even the little ones. Truth is bondage. Believe what seems right to you. There are as many truths as there are individuals. Follow your feelings. Do as you please. Get in touch with yourself. Do what feels comfortable. Those who speak this way prepare the jails of the 21st century. They do the work of tyrants, end quote. Now, the reason he says that those who speak that way do the, uh, prepare the jails of the 21st century is because if you raise up a generation who makes themselves God, who makes themselves the source of truth and the definition of truth, they will eventually not submit to external authority or truth and there will be law-breaking and they'll wind up in jail. That's what he means. And when he says they're doing the work of tyrants, he means this, any society that takes individu individual autonomous people and makes them the locus of, of truth is breeding anarchy and chaos where each person is his own law. And when anarchy becomes widespread enough, we give thanks to a tyrant who will rise up and protect us from the mob. That's the way it works. All in the name of freedom. And so it's a very profound analysis that those who are waving the banner of there is no absolute truth or 
There's nothing outside of you that should define you. You define yourself and you define your own truth. They are opening jails for you and they are preparing you to embrace tyranny. One of the aims of this conference is to awaken in you a well-grounded passion for the sheer existence of truth for the sake of passing that passion on to the next generation. If, if one of the greatest tragedies for our young people is that there is no such thing as truth and it doesn't matter much if there is, if that's true, then one of the greatest blessings that we can give to them is a passionate conviction that there is truth and that it matters at every point in life and eternally. So how shall I approach this, this issue? My title is The Sum of Your Word is, is Truth, which is taken from Psalm 119, verse 160. How shall we approach this? I'm gonna take my cue from Rudyard Kipling, who 100 years ago was writing poems and stories for children. And he wrote one that you may know, it's, it's a poem from a collection called The Elephant's Child. And the verse that triggers my approach goes like this. I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. I send them over land and sea. I send them east and west. And after they have worked for me, I give them all some rest. When I finished teaching college for six years and was wrapping it up in the spring of 1980, one of my classes gave me a t-shirt. And on the back of the t-shirt was written, Asking questions is the key to understanding, which was deeply gratifying to me because that's what I was trying to teach them. I, I knew they wouldn't remember what I taught them, <laughs> but if I could make them discoverers, miners, and then tell them this mine is worth a lifetime, then it might have been worth a semester. And that's true. So I'm going to structure this around a few of those serving men. Why, what, and how? And here are my three questions that I'll try to answer. Why should you care about passing on a passion for truth to the next generation? Why? Second, what is the sum of truth that we want the next generation to see and embrace? And three, how can the next generation, even little ones, come to know that this is in fact true and be joyfully confident in it? Question number one. Why should we care about passing along a passion for truth 
to the next generation. I'm going to give you just one reason. There are dozens. One reason for why you should care. And I choose this reason because of the huge impact that this story from the Bible has had on my attitude toward the sheer existence of truth and people who make light of it. The reason we should care about passing along a passion for truth to the next generation is that Jesus will not deal with people who will not take a stand for the truth. Jesus will not deal with people who will not take a stand for the truth. And if Jesus won't deal with you, you perish. Therefore, making light of the truth and being unwilling to take a stand for the truth is eternally serious. So here's the text. Matthew 21, 23 to 27. When he had entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will ask you one question and if you will tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. So I'm going to lay down a condition here for whether I'll deal with you. Verse 25. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd because they hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said to them, I'm not going to deal with you or neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Lots of emotions well up inside of me when I listen to these chief priests and elders. I get very angry. Look at, look at how they are dealing with truth. Jesus asked them, take a stand on a very simple issue. Baptism of John, take a stand. Either it's from heaven or it's from man. Just tell me what you think. Take a stand. Be public about what you believe. Have some courage here. Just say what you believe. He didn't even ask him to tell the truth. Just tell me what you think. And they say, if we say uh, it's from heaven, we're going to be shamed. Because he's going to point out we're not acting like that. We didn't believe it. 
we're not following John, so we're going to egg all over our face. So we obviously can't say that because we love our ego. So truth goes underneath ego. And then they reason, well, if you say it's from man, this crowd around here really didn't like him, John. And he, they think he's a prophet. So good night. There could be some mob violence or some, they could throw stones at us or something. They love their skin. And so they lie through their teeth. We don't know. Pure expediency. No love. They are thinking carefully. They are using their God-given brain and prostituting it. They don't love truth. They love their ego. They don't love truth. They love their skin. And Jesus watches them. And he says, I'm not going to talk to you. It is important that you labor to raise up a generation who are courageously willing to take stands for truth because if they're not, Jesus won't have any dealings with them. This is the way a depraved mind works and you don't want to cultivate that in your students or your little ones. If Jesus won't have dealings with us, we're lost, which means that since salvation is by grace, through faith and not of ourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast, it must be then that the willingness to take a stand for truth is inseparable from saving faith. People are saved by faith and if I'm right that Jesus won't have anything to do with people who won't take a stand for truth and so they are lost, then their willingness to take a stand for truth is necessary, but it's necessary as a concomitant of saving faith. It is inseparable. Saving faith is of the nature in its origin from the human soul that a perception of truth for which we are willing to lay down our lives becomes real for us. And then we believe it. And by believing, we're saved. But some kind of transformation happens in the soul toward truth in that process. This is not a small thing. The way we trivialize truth, play, play fast and loose with truth, talk as, with, as though there were no truth in our generation, as I said, is a great tragedy 
for our children. So question number one, why should you care about passing along a passion for truth? Because if people aren't willing to take a stand for truth, Jesus will have no dealings with them. Second question, what is the sum of truth we want the next generation to see and embrace? What is it? You've been speaking generically about truth. What's the truth you mean? What's the sum of truth you want them to embrace? And the answer is found in the theme verse of Psalm 119, 160, and it goes like this. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So ponder that sentence with me for a moment, and if you're willing, indulge me some original language background. I don't do this ordinarily, although every now and then it seems helpful. It's dangerous because when you pull rank on people who haven't studied Greek and Hebrew, you become a kind of authoritative priest to which they're supposed to cow, and, and that's not a good idea for pastors. So only uh, believe with great authority what you can see for yourself, but I'm going to tell you what I see. The word in Hebrew behind the word sum, if you have the King James, it's very different. It's translated beginning. Like, whoa, that's different. The word behind the word sum, the sum of your word is truth, is a very common Hebrew word, and those of you who study will recognize the word rosh. Rosh Hashanah. It means head. Everywhere. It means head. It can be a literal head on top of a body. It can be the head of a tribe. It can be the head of a river. It can have figurative meanings. So, but if you try to say the head of your word is truth, you're like, hmm, that's not communicating much. And it doesn't. It doesn't to me. And I got a lot of help from Derek Kidner. I do recommend his old two-volume InterVarsity commentary on the Psalms. Just amazing how much he packs into a little space. But he points me to the peculiar use of the Hebrew word rosh in Exodus 30, 12, and Numbers 1, um, in reference to the census that was taken. You'd never know what's behind these words. It says in Exodus 30, 12, the Lord says to Moses, when you take the census of the people, and the word is rosh, census. <laughs> when you take the head of the people, count them up. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So my mind ran like this, figuratively looking at this text, I'm thinking we take a census 
of God's word, so to speak. We do a head count. That's probably the way the connection happened. We do a head count. And when you do that, the implication is really quite remarkable. You take a census, a head count of the word of God. What you find is that the totality of the population, figuratively speaking, in the country called word of God, the totality of it is is truth. The sum total of the census yields truth. But also the individual citizens in this country called God's word what? Second half of the verse. So I think the the first half of the verse, Rosh, sum, and then the second half of verse 160 of Psalm 119 turns toward the individuals in the population of the word of God and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So you have summation, summation in the first half of the verse, and you have individualization in the second half of the verse. So that when you take this census, do the head count in the population called Word of God, this country called Word of God, the sum of it is truth, and every individual in it lasts forever because it's truth. That's the way I thought through this verse. So my answer to the question, what truth do you want the next generation to see and embrace? I want to say it is the word of God. What is that truth? It is the word of God. The sum of your word is truth. Or to use the words of Jesus, John 17, 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word, O God, is truth. When the Father, Jesus is praying to his Father, when the Father speaks, that's truth. By definition, truth is what God says. Your word, your speaking, O God, is truth. Now, step back for just a moment and ponder why that is. This is manifestly obvious what I'm about to say, but so important to rehearse to ourselves repeatedly because of the sheer wonder of it. You know, most of the the most awesome, wonderful, life-changing truths are the the basic ones, the simple ones, the, the most core, profound, central ones, not marginal controversial ones. And this one is really central and really profound. The reason God's word is ultimate truth is because God is ultimate reality. The concept of truth depends on the concept of the real. The truth is telling us what is real. For something to be true, something must be real behind it. Truth is a reference to and a faithful rendering of the real. There was 
no reality before God. God doesn't depend on any reality other than himself. All other reality is created by him. So by his sheer being and by his creating other reality, God has determined and defined the real. Nobody else has. He ultimately determines, ultimately defines the real, what is real, what is reality, what is in existence, what is. God defines that. He is that, and then he creates, and there's some more of it. That's contingent, and this is absolute. Since what makes something true is that it corresponds to the real, therefore God determines and defines all truth. Everything is true because God has made it true. God has spoken it as true. It corresponds to what God is or has made to be what it is. And therefore reality is governed, determined, defined by God and truth, which is a communication of that or a rendering of that or display of that is defined and determined by God. The way the Bible uses the term truth and the way we should use it is to refer to a faithful representation, representation of reality. If it is a true statement or proposition, the statement is faithfully representing reality. If it is a true story, when you tell a story to your class, if it's a true story, the story faithfully represents reality. If it is a true sunset, the sunset faithfully declares the glory of God, reality. Now, let's bring it to a point. The place where reality and representation come together most profoundly is Jesus. I come into the world to bear witness, witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, John 18, 37. My testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I belong, John 8, 14. My judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but the Father who sent me, John 18, 16. The one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. So Jesus spoke. He presented, he represented truth. But he also said something more profound in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the truth. 
the most ultimate reason that he could say that he was the truth is that he is God. In the beginning was the word and the word was God. The representation of God in the Trinity is so fully a representation. He is God. The word was God. That's why I say in Jesus, the, the, the reality and the representation come together perfectly and fully so that we have a trinity. The Spirit, the Son, and the Father are one reality spoken differently by the Father. So Jesus enters the world as the ultimate divine reality and as the perfect spokesman for this reality, which is God's final decisive way of saying truth is not inaccessible. Truth is pursuing you you're not mainly pursuing truth. If God touches you, you start to pursue its fullness, but the initiative had to be with the definer of reality, the origin of reality, the definer of truth, sent truth in the world and it pursued, he pursued us. Truth is not inaccessible. He is after us if we will Yield. I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So Jesus is God. He is God's word and he speaks God's word. Now, next step. We're still under question number two. What's the sum that we want these children to get? We're still under. I want to know the scope of this word. I've got Jesus now as the, as the core representation of the Almighty incarnate as the truth, speaking the truth at the center of the universe. I've got that now. I want to know something about the scope of this truth. And I get it from listening to him and watching him put his profound and repeated endorsement upon the Old Testament. And I watch him prepare his apostles to be inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the New Testament as the foundation for the church so that the scope is the Bible. Just a few verses. Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Matthew 5, 17 and 18. And there are dozens. Maybe I better not overstate it. Let's just say there are at least a dozen other statements that strong in the Gospels to the effect that the Word of God incarnate, who is truth, speaks concerning the truth of the Old Testament. And that heaven and earth won't pass away until everything intended by that book infallibly comes to pass. 
as God designed and intended it. Or concerning the New Testament, John 16, 13, Jesus says to his apostles, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come so that those apostles in their writings, speaking as authoritative emissaries of the risen Christ, provide the foundation for the church, Ephesians 2.20. And Paul talks like this. We impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So, from Psalm 119, verse 160, I answer the second question, what is the truth you want the next generation to see and embrace? I say, the sum of your word is truth. And I go to the center and I see that Jesus Christ is that word incarnate. And then I listen to him and watch him bless, endorse the Old Testament and prepare and send apostles authoritatively prepared to receive the spirit for the New Testament. Pause here now before I go to the third question and just just think about this for a moment. The God who made everything, knows everything, controls everything, has a purpose for everything. This God has spoken to us. This is simply breathtaking. Impossible to overstate the importance of that simple basic truth. The God of the universe about whom we sang has spoken to us in a book. We are not left without a knowledge of his will. We're not left without wisdom. We're not left without unfathomable knowledge that none of us will ever exhaust. We're not left without a revelation of the way of salvation, the way of everlasting joy. He hasn't left us without a way to measure all those things. Halloween, Glenn Beck. He hasn't left us without a way to measure every vital thing we face. This is simply a priceless legacy to give to our children. It's priceless. If we could awaken in our children and our young adults the confidence that this is so, think how they will live their lives. Think how they will navigate the increasingly perplexing culture in which we live the implications for their lives will be countless and vital. Let me read to you two little paragraphs from the Bethlehem Baptist Church 
elder affirmation of faith, which is also the children's desiring God affirmation of faith, which is also the desiring God affirmation of faith. What do we believe at the, in, in this church and these ministries? And, and here are two paragraphs. I'm going to just draw something out of the second one. They're just a couple of sentences each. We believe that the Bible, consisting in the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, is the infallible word of God, verbally inspired by God and without error in the original manuscripts. Paragraph two. We believe that God's intentions revealed in the Bible are supreme and final authority in testing all claims about what is true and what is right in matters not addressed in the Bible, what is true and right is assessed by criteria consistent with the teachings of Scripture, which means that we aim, I pray that you aim, to bequeath to our children a legacy of truth, the sum of truth, God's word, which is pervasively relevant. It's pervasively relevant. I admit, I admit to being absolutely baffled when pastors seek to preach on something other than the Bible, as though it were not relevant or interesting. <laughs> I just can't get it. I sit at my desk and I look at this book day after day and thinking, a thousand sermons, give me a thousand sermons, and this would never be boring to me. I don't get it. Why, what in the world that's not in the manuscript, it's just. <laughs> in other words, everything our children will face, absolutely everything, either directly, because it's addressed in the Bible, or indirectly, because the Bible shapes the attitudes and criteria that we deal with it, everything is touched by the Bible. Just a personal testimony after 30 years of pastoral ministry. I just testify, I'm glad 78 pastors are here. I want to encourage you. I testify that having in my hands the word of the living God the sum of which is truth, week in and week out. Having this in my hands has made all the difference. Every thought that enters my mind passes through the framework of the Bible. At least that's my goal. Every sermon I preach, every article, book, blog I write, I am aware that the assertions that I make, this is very self-conscious to me, every time, 
I am aware that the assertions I make have no authority and no eternal significance unless they are rooted in this book and shaped by this book. I'm aware. I'm going to talk to several thousand people this weekend. What I say has no authority and no eternal significance unless it is rooted in and shaped by, formed by, balanced by, driven by the authority, the divine authority of this book. And my own conviction is they need to see that. They need to see that for themselves. Look at, I I say things like, look at the second half of verse 20 that starts with the word for. Are we looking at it? Because what I say doesn't matter. This matters. You've got to see this. And and you should help the children see it. Don't don't let me have to start that at, at age 22 when they come to Bethlehem Seminary. I would like to have your kids someday and, and have them know that already, that, that when you're in a Bible study group and you say, what do you think love means? And so he said, oh, I think love means, no, 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 I didn't, I, didn't want, I didn't want your head. I want the book. Look at the book. In fact, don't look at that part of the book, this part of the book, right there. It's in that verse. So many people operate out of their head. They just, just go to the verse. <laughs> End of question number two. What is, the next one is, is short. What is the next generation supposed to see and embrace when you say they should care about the truth? What do you mean? And I, I say, I mean that the sum of God's word is truth which in a nutshell is the 66 books of the Bible with Jesus incarnate as the word of God at the center. That's what I mean. Last question. How can the children come to know that it is true and be joyfully confident in it? How can they know the Bible is true? How can they go to the center, Jesus, gospel, cross, resurrection, story of salvation, running through the Bible, climaxing in Jesus? How can they know that's true and then move out from there as their knowledge grows to embrace the whole book as they read more and more of it? How can they know? Let me me show you how I'm approaching this autobiographically because the it's the way I, I, I have been wired. When I was in college and seminary, I had grown up in a Christian home, and like most of us, and I think this is pretty much inevitable, um, although I hope because of these conferences we do much better, I didn't go to college with rigorous answers to hard apologetic questions. I went with a pretty simple, and I think God giving me a pretty strong faith. I've never thrown it away. I've never even had a serious season of being tempted to throw it away. It was too precious and too true, but I I couldn't give any answers as to why 
I, I believed that. So as I was reading apologetics, I want to see some reasons. I want to strengthen. I want to be able to talk about these things. What, what the Lord moved from the back of my brain closer and closer to the front was, will this argument that you are now studying for the truth of the Bible be useful and understandable and memorable for a preliterate tribe in Papua New Guinea, one year old in the faith? Or an eight-year-old in our Sunday school? Or an, an average layman who frankly is tired at the end of the day and doesn't have the inclination or the training to trace out long, complicated historical reasonings concerning the authenticity of the Gospels. Will it work for them? Can it be useful for them? And now the answer to that question is maybe, but probably not. And then I began to see, well, wait a minute, that's the way most people are in the world. Most people are young when they come to faith. Are they coming legitimately? And most people in our churches are not highly educated people with a strong inclination to do historical reasoning. And so 90% of the world can't go this route. Does that mean that for most of the children you're going to be dealing with, most of the young adults and most of the lay people, they're just going to have to leap in the dark. They're just going to cross their fingers and say, that's what my mom taught me. Hope it's true because I'm scared of hell. <laughs> and, and frankly, I think that is the way many live. We are scared of hell. We don't see a lot of we can't, our brains can't say to the skeptic down the street who just mocked us this morning at the office, we could think of all the things that needed to be said and so our hearts kind of condemn us and we feel like, oh, shoot, am I real? That's what I care about. I've got to help the 90%. I can't, I, I can't spend my life tracing out compelling, valid arguments for the 10% mainly. I'm a pastor. I'm glad there are people who write those books. I've been helped by them. But I've got, if there's not a way for children and ordinary lay people and uh, a tribe in Papua New Guinea who's been hearing the narration of redemptive history for about a year, and then here's the story of the cross. If it, there's not a way for all three of those groups to come to well-grounded, reasonable faith in Jesus, I'm done. It's all a game. It's just all a game. That's serious. And the most helpful person outside the Bible has been Jonathan Edwards. It's interesting to me how the greatest mind in American history helped me with the 
most practical crisis that I was facing. And I'm going to read you just to let you hear his heart. He posed the question exactly the way I wanted to pose it. And I'll just let him talk for the next minute and a half or so. So this is the quote from Edwards that goes, unless men may come to a reasonable, solid persuasion and conviction of the truth of the gospel by the internal evidences of it, by a sight of its glory, it is impossible that those who are illiterate and unacquainted with history should have any thorough and effectual conviction of it at all. They may, without this, see a great deal of probability in it. It may be reasonable for them to give much credit to what learned men and historians tell them, but to have a conviction so clear and evident and assuring as to be sufficient to induce them with all boldness to sell all, confidently and fearlessly to run the venture of the loss of all things and of enduring the most exquisite and long-continued torments and to trample the world underfoot and count all things but dung for Christ, the evidence they can have from history cannot be sufficient. And you all know that. You've read some apologetic book. Years ago, it might have been, Why I Believe the Bible is True by Paul Little. I read it, loved it. I never could remember what it said when I needed it. How are you going to die for Jesus? if you can't remember why you believe when they got a gun to your head. It won't work. There's got to be a different, there's got to be another valid, what are his words? Reasonable, solid persuasion and conviction, not irrationality. I hate the teaching that you just make a leap of faith into the dark. And the reason I hate it is not any epistemological mumbo jumbo. It's very simple. If you don't have a reason for believing what you believe, you dishonor what you believe. If my wife says to me, I trust you. And I say, thank you. Why? And she says, I don't have any reasons why. I just do. I'm not honored I wanted to give me a few character traits. <laughs> and then I'm honored if she's she seen some reasons that she should trust me. But if she says, oh, I trust you. I think, you could trust anybody then. You could marry anybody. <laughs> and so same thing with God. If you just say, I'll just do, I'll just do. Well, he's not honored by that kind of answer. So let's draw this to an end by pointing you to two passages of Scripture and commending a sermon. Jonathan Edwards' sermon, A Divine and Supernatural Light, immediately imparted to the soul by the Spirit of God. It is longer than that, but I'll stop there. 
a divine and supernatural light immediately imparted to the soul by the Spirit of God is one of the greatest sermons I have ever come in contact with, and it's on this issue. It's online. Find it anywhere. You don't have to buy it. And its text is the text I'm now going to read. Matthew 16, 16 and 17. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What does that mean? There, there he was standing in front of him. That's the Son of God. The evidence is in his, nobody ever spoke like this man. The evidence in his, in his miracles the evidence is in his raising someone from the dead. The, the evidence is in the commingling of excellencies found in no other person in their unusual integration and tension. All kinds of manifest external reasons why we should credit this man's claim to be the son of God. He's not a lunatic and he'd have to be if it weren't true. We all know he's real. No, we don't. The Pharisees don't. And they're seeing it all. It what the external evidences were not and are not decisive. One thing is decisive. My father opened your eyes to see real glory, not darkness into which you leap. Jesus is really self-authenticatingly true. If God the Father opens the eyes of your heart, you see and you know, and when the pistol is to your head, you see it like Stephen did. And you say, I can't leave him. I can't. And you go to be with him. And you don't need a long train of arguments. You have seen the king. You have seen the glory in the story of the gospel. Flesh and blood stands for intellectual efforts and personal efforts and ex all external things, all human things, and they're not evil. I preach, that's flesh and blood. I write books, that's flesh and blood. This conference is flesh and blood. One thing will send you out of here aflame with the glory of God in the word of God. And that's the work of the Father. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father touched you, Peter, gave you eyes. One last text, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verses three through six. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now keep that phrase in your mind as we read on. 
Verse 6. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown. This is what happened to Peter. Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This text teaches that all human beings are blinded at the beginning. Our sin and the devil conspiring with our own corruption and fallenness are blinded. What are we blinded to? Facts? No, no. Unbelievers can get facts even clearer. The devil gets the facts clearer about the deity of Jesus than most of us. That's not what we're blinded to. What we're blinded to is the glory of the facts, the beauty of the facts, the compelling worth of the facts. He calls it, verse 4, we must see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, not just the facts of Christ. The devil knows Jesus died, and he knows Jesus died for sin. But he doesn't see him as glorious. He doesn't see light. He sees stuff that he hates. He runs from. He can't stand it. What has to happen? Verse 6, the God who once said, let there be light, and there was light, has to say that to our hearts so that we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, We're not asking our children to leap in the dark. Our young adults, we're not asking them to just believe because mommy believes. That's not what we're saying. The light is really shining as the gospel story is being told faithfully. There is real glory radiant in the person and work of Christ in the biblical portrait communicated in your lessons. Real, self-authenticating glory is shining through as you speak faithfully, truly, what's in the Bible. So one last quote from Edwards. The soul may have a kind of intuitive knowledge of the divinity of the things exhibited in the gospel. Not that he judges the doctrines of the gospel to be from God without any argument or deduction at all, but it is without any long chain of arguments. The argument is but one, and the evidence direct. The mind ascends to the truth of the gospel by one step. That is its divine glory. That's an exposition and a faithful one of 2 Corinthians 4, 4, and 6. Our children do not need to understand this. They need to experience it. Now, don't hear me say that wrong. I mean, in order to experience it, They don't need to explain it. This happened to all of you before you could explain it, if you're saved. In fact, this may be the first time anybody has ever explained to you how you got saved. That's my job 
often at Bethlehem is to help truly born again people know what happened to them because very few people have taught them what happened to them. Matthew 16, 17 is what happened to you. The Father revealed the glory of Christ one evening while you were listening to Billy Graham or listening to a friend or reading your Bible or picking up a track or reading a blog and suddenly all the defenses fell down and he was irresistibly compelling and that wasn't you. You don't have to be able to theologically account for that when it happens. So our job with a five-year-old or an eight-year-old or a 15-year-old is not to make sure they can reproduce this message. Far be it. The goal is so portray the Bible, the truth of it, and especially the center of it, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So faithfully render that in simple stories, texts, doctrines, illustrations with the prayer, O oh God, do this miracle. May their minds ascend by one, as it were, intuitive spiritual step straight to conviction along the beam of glory. And if it happens, it will be far more effective than mere compliance with mommy and daddy's faith and rules. How many of us have tasted what it's like to have adult children go away and you realize that 19 years of compliance was not that. Don't be settled for compliance. Plead for the miracle. Summing up, question one, why should you care about the passing along of a passion for truth? Answer, Matthew 21, 23 to 27, Jesus won't deal with people who don't take a stand for truth. Question number two, what is the sum of the truth that you want the next generation to see and embrace? Answer, Psalm 119, 160. The sum of truth is your word, that is, the Bible, and at the center, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Question number three, how can even our children, preliterate tribes in Papua New Guinea, and average lay people with weary minds ascend to a conviction that is solid and well-grounded, answer by the opening of their eyes to see the light, the self-authenticating, glorious light of Christ in the Gospels. And your job is not to make that happen, but to so portray him that the Holy Spirit who loves to glorify him will use your portrayal to make it the occasion when it happens. So my prayer for you is may God fill you with a strong love for truth, a deep grasp of the Bible as the sum of truth, and 
a powerful self-authenticating sight yourself of the glory of God in the face of Christ in the gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. We love your word. I pray that there would be seething, as it were, in the hearts of hundreds here. Oh, how I love thy law. It is now or it will be my meditation all the day. I will make it the foundation, the center, and the capstone of all my teaching. Lord, raise up a generation with this kind of well-grounded confidence in and passion for the truth, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.